Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology, the podcast where we study leadership and strategy in the field of artificial intelligence, machine learning, and data science. My name is Felipe Flores. I am a data science executive with almost 20 years in the field, still working as a practitioner, and also your host. Thanks so much for tuning in and seeing, listening to the show. I hope that you and your loved ones are staying healthy and safe during this pandemic. Today, we are speaking with Chris Matman, who is a super impressive dude. So Chris is the Deputy Chief Technology and Innovation Officer at NASA, NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab, where he was recognized as JPL's, so Jet Propulsion Lab, JPL's first principal data scientist in the area of data science. Chris has applied TensorFlow to challenges he's faced at NASA, including an implementation of Google's show-and-tell algorithm for image captioning using TensorFlow. He tells us about that. He contributes to open source as a former director of the Apache Software Foundation. He teaches graduate courses at USC in content detection and analysis and in search engines and information retrieval. Told you, super, super impressive guy. Chris has spent almost 20 years working at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab. You'll hear him mention that as JPL. And he is the author of a book called Machine Learning with TensorFlow. He wrote the second edition after reading the first edition and applying the learnings from the first edition onto all these different areas. So he had multiple sort of three-month projects that he set for himself, applying TensorFlow to all these different areas, and then wrote the code and wrote some explanations and started compiling that onto a book, which became the second edition of the book, even though he didn't write the first edition. Crazy. How does he do that? With uh, his job at NASA, job at the university, involved with the Apache Foundation. So impressive. So here is the conversation with Chris Matman. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, this is Felipe. Today I'm speaking with Chris Matman. Chris, thank you so much for being on the show. How are you doing? I'm doing okay out here in uh, sunny Pasadena in Southern California. Nice to be on the show, Felipe. Wow. Thanks so much for making the time. Matt, you've had such an incredible and accomplished career. I wanted to ask you first about the very beginnings and how did you get started in data? Uh, what, where did the interest come from in the first place? Let's see. That's probably a quick story. I'll try and make it so that I'm not too long-winded. Basically, years ago, maybe about 20 years ago, I was a student at the uh, University of Southern California. I was, even though that's a pretty expensive school, we didn't have a lot of money, so I was paying for myself. And that was the fault of my parents, but was uh, take care of myself. And I was looking for a job at the time when I was an undergraduate. And basically, my foray into data came when one late night, you know, I was staying up in the computer lab and there was a job opportunity to work at JPL, not the JBL, not the headphone company, but JPL, the people that make space rockets and that uh, explore the universe. And um, basically, it was an offer to be a computer guy or gal back in the day, you know, working with scientists and helping them manage their data. And so the first gentleman I worked for, Rob Raskin, in about 2000, was a, I'll call it a born-again computer scientist who had a PhD <laughs> in atmospheric science. He was more of an atmospheric science guy, but he was doing ontologies and, and data wow. and stuff like that. That was my first foray into kind of data and all some of the challenges. It wasn't called big data or data science back then. And so then hung around, helped build teams, deliver missions to NASA You know, over the past 20 years and got involved in open source and data, data processing, and now do a lot of data science analytics. I'm out of the kind of tactical operations element of it and, and more in kind of the analytics and IT elements of it now. 
And as a, as a computer science major at the time, did you have much of an interest in the science component, in the rocket part, in working with these scientists? Was that all new to you or, or was it an existing interest? Admittedly, at the time, I've always been like interested in science, but I wasn't as much back then. I, I didn't. Ultimately, I, I got really jazzed. I was always into sports. I was into computers, you know, things like that. I wasn't, I would call it the person who was studying earth science or natural science or, and actually I did mm. terrible at biology and other things, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't really good at that, but probably why I wasn't a doctor, you know, that deals with any uh, blood or medicine or anything like that. But probably 2003, I think was when I first really started to appreciate working at JPL three or four years in, and it was the Mars Rover program. And uh, it was the spirit and opportunity twin rovers that they sent. And I remember seeing those touchdown on Mars and I got really into Things like watching the History Channel, watching science, watching National Geographic and getting into planetary science. And so over the years at JPL, I got more and more into it. At the time, I considered going back to school. I was working with a lot of like people that were doing astronomy. I considered going and get a degree in astronomy. I considered we worked with like people in hyperspectral remote sensing, like water management in the Western US. I considered studying that. It took me a little while, but if it never sticks to you, you're not going to stay at, uh, at JPL, I think, if you're a yeah. computer scientist. And so it did stick to me eventually. Very interesting that it was the fact that your efforts were being put to use like with the Mars rover landing and that it was sort of, I guess, maybe in production kind of thing, that it was in use and out there. That's the original hook for you into the application in this field. That's really interesting. What, what was your involvement in, in the project up to that point? So for the Spirit and Opportunity rovers, my involvement at the time is I was involved in the PDS, the Planetary Data System Engineering Node, and I was helping to build basically their data management framework. It was a software kind of inappropriately named today by today's standards, but back then at the time it was a hot name. It was called OODT, Object Oriented Data Technology, and basically everything was object oriented. It was back hot. Then. Yeah, it used to be hot. I mean, now yeah. no one cares and it's dated and old and, you know, whatever. But back then it was so hot. Good. So Yeah, um, I remember the times. <laughs> so it was building in the software for the planetary data system. And so PDS is where all of NASA's planetary mission data goes to rest and to be made available to the public, including the Mars rovers and MER and today the Curiosity rover and eventually the 2020 rover and things like that. So Incredible. And how long were you in JPL? I'm coming up on my 20-year mark. So I've been there, basically, I like to tell people since I was a little pup, puppy and, uh, you know, I've grown up a little bit. Uh, so, yeah, about 20 years. And towards the beginning or maybe in the first part, did you have more of an operational role, as you were describing, and then transition to the type of role that you have now? Yeah, that's right, Felipe. I started out in technology development and research, but as an individual contributor. And mm -hmm. I kind of grew to leading teams on the project side that built the, the ground data systems that handled the data processing for missions and for the archives and stuff. And after doing that for about five to seven years, both in PDS and then on the earth science side, you know, I was involved in a number of earth science missions where we built the ground data system for their projects. And so the ground data system is the thing, once the information has been downlinked to the ground from a satellite to a ground station, it's the thing that turns the raw data into something that's usable by the community or by the science or education and policy and things like that. So it's a system that does that. So I was involved in that for about five to seven years. And then I kind of 
you know, you can do that for a while. And I tell people, it's kind of like you get burned out sometimes. Mm. You can get burned out doing that, babysitting the instrument, being involved in a lot of tactical things. It's so amazing, but it's also very exhausting. And so after um, maybe about 2010, 2009, I moved mm. back into technology development and R&D and uh, more on kind of like the management end. And that was sort of the genesis of my current role in IT, where I'm the deputy CTO. I manage our innovation team. And how's that transition been for you? Was it like going back home? How did it feel? Uh, yeah, it was kind of like going back home. For me, uh, when I was doing some of the stuff before, maybe 15, 16, 17 years ago, I was more on the individual contributor end, and IT looked a lot different back then. And IT was different. You know, it was also science wanted to have its own shadow IT. It still does somewhat. You know, science and engineering believe they can do IT and things like that. And I understand mm -hmm. the reasons behind that. But now, at least, and I've seen this not just at JPL or NASA, but I see this across a lot of government agencies and also in industry, is that IT and sort of domain-specific business and things like that are more integrated. That's certainly the case at JPL, you know, today where, say, the people in our innovation office aren't, like, walled off and just managing the phones and telecommunications and software like that. They do that. There are elements of them that do it, but they're also cross-functional innovators that can go work on a mission, provide innovation, extra capacity, people that can do AI or machine learning or data science. And the thing is, those are the hot skills that all the mm. missions and projects need. And the struggle over there is the life cycle of people that they higher is typically, I say, kind of like the one to 30 time scale, you know, over in science and engineering, you're maturing someone over 30 years or something like that. And that scale, it makes it difficult to get kind of that IT innovation talent who want to be on that every three to five to seven year life cycle where they're constantly, if they're not turning over in your company in a different organization, they're leaving jobs and switching jobs mm. and things like that. So it's, um, it's been a partnership. And uh, for me, I've just tried to say, like, look, you know, IT is very integrated in science and engineering at JPL and NASA, and that's the way it has to be, you know, because we manage a different life cycle of people. Correct. Yeah. Different life cycle, different interests, different expectations. And how do you integrate with a different life cycle, with a different timing? And how do the cross-functional teams work when you're helping the science missions from an IT perspective? Yeah, I mean, you nailed it. Cross-functional teams. And, and the way that they work is sort of a couple things. We have this concept of JPL. We use Slack. We're a heavy user of Slack. You know, we got 3,000 plus, you know, users of the, you know, 6,500 we have on site using wow. it. So we have a you know, very well-used Slack channel. And one of the things that's offered in there is a service called Donut, which is like bottom-up random meeting and coffee between people, which is obviously made more complicated by COVID and things like that today. In the past, the way it would work, and I think this will be the way even during the time of COVID and after, is it pairs people randomly. And it could be a senior mm -hmm. manager with someone very new. It could be two mid-level people. You know, it randomly does it. And so there's this notion of bottom-up, I think, people mm -hmm. meeting each other, sharing interests. So I feel like you have have to have that. It can't just be directed from the top down. Certainly business and priority needs kind of dictate, okay, these organizations need to be working together beyond that. But um, that's sort of from the top down, just what's your swim lane. And so we're seen as a cross-functional sort of resource for the laboratory, not just for IT, but for science and engineering, like as a place to go to for capacity expansion, but also looking for subject matter experts in these hot areas. And so there is that mm -hmm. kind of top-down level direction. But one thing I find a lot is that our people, they're seen as sort of innovative consultants 
And so we preach nice. consultancy for our people to the missions, which is, hey, you know, a lot of times you just need system engineering, consulting help, things like that in these particular areas. And so we can get in, we can be part of the team, get in the trenches. And then as we develop or help them deliver, we don't define their process for them. So we don't tell them, oh, you have to follow an IT process. Most mm. of the time, missions and science and engineering have their own peer reviews, their own life cycle and process. And so we just fit into that. And so that's been a big advantage for us is not to try and say IT project management as much as yeah. to fit into their you know life cycle and things like that. And, and I can tell you, it's been very key because the challenge that they have over there is capacity and also in these particular skill areas. So definitely. And by adapting your style to their needs, you would, you would be seen as a trusted partner and part of the team and or group of people they would be seeking out constantly with new ideas and for the support, I guess, that you guys can provide through the process. And have there been any bottoms up ideas that have come up sort of uh, grassroots, anything that you can share, obviously respecting any confidentiality, but anything that has come up bottoms up that you could tell us a little bit about? Yeah, one really good example of that is the open source rover project. It's just open source rover, all one word, .jpl.nasa.gov. That was a bottoms up effort. And basically what happened was the people in our robotics and um, mobility organization, they basically had this system called Rove, R-O-V-E. And basically mm -hmm. the idea was it was a lightweight, low cost rover. It's not like the big Mars rovers, but it was just something to experiment on that someone should be able to kind of build and then test out various mechanics and things like that. Well, they came to the people in, in our innovation organization and uh, the project was stalled and they didn't know kind of what to do next. And so we helped them basically define it as sort of a platform that looked at using commodity, IoT and Internet of Things, you know, just applying the tech trends. So we said, hey, you need Raspberry Pis on this thing. Mm -hmm. Hey, you need to build, say, the rover wheel motion, just like the rover boogie on the MSL or the Curiosity rover, you know, it needs to have that type of suspension to test it out. Oh, we should add things like artificial intelligence and say emotion to it, or we should look at things like that. So we just made it a platform for experimentation. And then the other thing that we did is we have a big partnership with Amazon. And so we worked with Amazon as well, too. And we basically said, hey, look, we're building this in robot operating system, ROS. Version 1.0 is kind of old. There are all these updates we figured out while we were building this platform. Amazon came around and said, hey, we should make a ROS too. And they turned that into a commercial product called RoboMaker, which is now a service, you know, for others to kind of build off of. So one thing that we did too is that we took that rover cheap kind of small lightweight concept and we said, look, anyone in the world should be able to build this thing for 2,500 bucks or less. We provide a design, a bill of materials, things like that. And we turn it into a big open source project. And wow. so now the people in our robotics organization, they're really happy for two reasons. First, we got people all around the world building this in high schools, K-12, things like that. There's, you know, multiple what? versions of it everywhere. And then now it's the most popular project on our NASA GitHub like that. And so, and we have maker communities all over the world and, and people talking about it. And that was not a directed big mission or project. It was just, say, the people in our robotics organization working with our innovators and stuff like that. So I love it. That is amazing. <laughs> I'll definitely be adding a, a link to that in the show notes. That is, uh, and I will have a look myself. That's awesome. And during your time as a CTO and head of innovation, was there a time where machine learning became more important and where people had to be skilled up during your tenure? Was that before? How have you seen the importance of machine learning rise during your time in your current role? 
So I've been in my current role for about three years. I've seen over the last five years, like AI and machine learning in particular and deep learning really becoming things that weren't just boutique solutions to problems and where they actually were very practical, Mm -hmm. even without some high-powered computing device or laptop or GPU or something like that. Obviously, having that type of hardware is important. It can speed it up. But when you have sentiment analysis that just operates on, you know, open web data or social media, when you, especially all the computer vision stuff, smart cars, you know, the evolution Mm -hmm. of, you know, self-driving vehicles, the extraction of other information from the open web and, you know, the power of basically trying to stop bad things that are going on, like human trafficking on the web and and things like that, or arms and weapons trafficking, and just the evolution of kind of capability and technology for that. And then in particular in space, even on the ground with our our projects, really the movement towards automation. The, Hmm. The fact that AI, ML, not only can save time for things, but it can make duplicative skills for really jobs that people don't need to be doing anymore in some cases, you know, where it's like the computer can just do it better. And instead, people should be focusing on kind of, I think, the higher order tasks. You know, the funny thing at JPL as an institution, we say we typically build the first of a kind of something. But if it becomes commodity, we don't need to build it anymore. Industry can do that. It's kind of the same concept, I think, with AI and machine learning. I feel like If it becomes commodity, it's something we should really look to automate and then save our human brains and skills for the really difficult challenges, I think. For the new things, like the first of a kind. I really like that approach, actually. And I wanted to ask you about one of my assumptions, I guess, about your work. Well, I guess the assumption is, do you have large amounts of data sort of endless, endless amount of data. And the reason why I ask is when I was speaking to um, to people that, that work at CERN, and one of the interesting things that stuck with me is that in the Large Hadron Collider, they can collect so much data that a human can't troll through everything. So they actually have machine learning models that filter through the data in the first place and get it down to about a 10% of what it was originally. And then they have machine learning models that pick out the interesting things for humans to look at. So people end up looking at such a small fraction. In the case of of NASA and JPL, do you have similar types of issues or is it on the other extreme that, for example, from a Mars rover, you'd be able to get such little amount of data that you'd be looking more at embedded technology where you can run machine learning algorithms on limited hardware like on a Raspberry Pi? And are you more excited about those types of advances or advances that use sort of huge, uh, huge data sets? Sorry, over to you. (laughs) No, it's great, Felipe. That's a good way to frame the question. And uh, it's a perfect question. It's domain specific. And it also, at least in my career, has been time specific. I spent a lot of time, I would say early on, on the initial wave of like doing the big data element to it. And just to capture the science domain, you know, that was really exciting to me before. Like when you heard about projects like the square kilometer array that was going to produce 700 terabytes of data per second and triage, like you're mentioning, and just prioritizing what data you should sift through as an astronomer, that was very interesting. And I did spend a lot of time working on projects like that. As the instrumentation has grown, own, you know, Earth science, I think, because it's closer terrestrially, you know, monitoring the Earth than it is in deep space. That has driven, I think, a lot of innovation there. And AI and ML is probably more applicable there, especially with the commoditization of satellites from Planet or, you know, Digital Globe, now Maxar and things like that. The small sat, CubeSat industry, all of that. Really today, I spend a lot of time thinking on the innovation end on the, the latter case, which you're talking about, which is really the case of how do we take, say, TensorFlow, machine learning models and port them to TF Lite? And how do we bring them to things like a Qualcomm Snapdragon or 
Yeah. Eventually, there's this government project, NASA, Air Force, DOD, where, which is called high performance space flight computing. And it's to have a radiation hardened GPU like chip, you know, say. And wow. the big difference between it and like commercial industry, Snapdragon, and things like that is that in those cases, it doesn't matter if they're radiation hardened or not, because you're using them in sort of a technology demonstration type of environment rather than the risk averse one that we're doing. And so, in those types of environments, you have to sort of think about how to take, like you said, the machine learning or the deep learning and run it there because the bandwidth or the pipe from here to Mars is small. And so if we could do more autonomy on board, you know, by doing the deep learning there, you could have all sorts of other applications. Real quick way to illustrate that, mm -hmm. we take about 200 images per day from our Mars Curiosity MSL car-sized rover on Mars right now. And we use those images to plan what to do the next day for surface operations and things. What if tomorrow with high-performance spaceflight computing or a GPU-like chip on board and with some deep learning models that could say, caption the images that it sees? What if tomorrow, we could return a million captions that were generated on the rover and are simply text instead of images that we need to send back. Obviously, that would increase our surface density, our ability to observe, you know, and things like that. And so those are just some of the applications of deep learning and machine learning for that. Yeah, I think obviously that advancement in embedded technology, being able to run the algorithms there, that sounds amazing. And that sounds almost like the more exciting applications because most people are talking, you know, about the, like the edge computing or machine learning on the edge. Um, and they're say kind of like have things in the in a smart home or um, be able to run machine learning on your air conditioner and you talk to it and things like that. But this is the real frontier. And I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about the hardware challenges, because I think most people don't realize that commercial hardware can't go into space, essentially, and that there's a whole new level of difficulty there that needs to be breached before we can start to run the algorithms that we know and love in space. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so the challenge is that hardware in space is irradiated by cosmic radiation. And so you can imagine irradiation as just, for instance, doing very mundane things like flipping the values of bits to even worse, just turning off the hardware putting it into a mode that it doesn't work in. On a time scale, that can happen in some cases very quickly within a matter of days, and sometimes it takes longer. It takes a year or it takes a couple of years. And so depending on the requirements for your mission, how long it needs to be observing or doing things, you can make some trade-offs on this. So the small SAT CubeSat community, which are the modern community of not having a big flagship space mission, big hardware, 10 years to build it, multi-big institutions, but have university people basically build something as small as kind of like a gift box and then uh, catch a ride wow. on or catch a payload, you know, on some other lift on the way up. That's the small SAT CubeSat community. They've been sort of paving the way forward and trying to use, say, what we would call non-radiation hardened type of hardware with the acceptance that these are small and cheap devices. We'll throw up five of them at a time and if three of them fail, we still have two. And so that's the notion of like technology demonstrations and uh, being less risk averse and more risk taking. NASA and JPL are definitely playing in that space. We are operating in that space, but clearly universities, commercial industries, and other places kind of have the market on it right now because if they fail, there's not a congressional inquiry. <laughs> you know, we don't have, they don't have to stand up in front of the US <laughs> Congress and things like that like we do. 
But given that, they can and, and are showing that you can take commercial grade type of hardware and use it sometimes if there are, say, if you loosen the restrictions on acceptability for failure and things like I talked about. So the other mm. thing is if you don't lower those expectations, the good news is that there are a few efforts, like I mentioned, like the high performance space like computing chip effort and some other efforts where they are trying to build a radiation hardened GPU like chip. And uh, we will have access to that soon. We already have emulators for those so we can basically build code for the target hardware. So that's just the hardware elements. The other thing with machine learning and AI is the models themselves, when you try and take them from terrestrial big capacity desktop computing to embedded devices, one thing you find out is that some of the assumptions break. One of the big things about AI and machine learning models, TensorFlow, anything else, PyTorch, is that there are a bunch of weights that the machine learns how to set the weights in a bunch of the systems of linear equations. Well, when you take the weights on systems that have different expectations of just say things like floating points, where on mm. an embedded device, floating points are different or integers are different, you have to do what's called quantizing the model or using what you actually have available on the target hardware, which might not be the same as on your big desktop computer. And so there's a lot of work to basically make light versions of the models that still operate on those embedded devices, but that don't say degrade accuracy in their predictions and things like that. And so that's another challenging area. Definitely. That would be tremendously challenging, actually. I wanted to switch tack a little bit and ask you about your book, actually. So Machine Learning with TensorFlow, second edition. How did the book come about? And obviously, then a little bit about how it's, it, uh, it's tied to your experiences and your works, and then we'll get into what's in the book. But how, how did the book come about in the first place? So the book came about by me reading the first edition of the book about uh, maybe about a year and a half ago. And at that time, it was maybe nine months old. And I'm a former Manning author. Manning Publications are the people that publish the book and are publishing my book right now. Ten years ago, I wrote a book called Tika in Action with Manning. And uh, Tika mm -hmm. is a framework for basically content detection and analysis. It helps solve the Panama Papers. It's sort of widely deployed and, and things like that. And so I wrote a book with a, another author ten years ago on that. So I kind of still stay in touch with Manning and read their books and things. And so I was reading this first edition of the machine learning book, mainly to understand what some of my staff and employees I manage in the innovation office, like what they were doing. <laughs> you know, they're talking about yeah. AI and ML. And I wasn't sort of classically trained in that. I was more of a statistics, information retrieval, software type of person. So I was reading it and I found it, it was a really great book, but like everywhere that it would suggest, say, an end of chapter assignment after you learn kind of the theory about it, the end of chapter assignments, as I started to try and take my time and say, implement them or work on them, they all turned into say five to eight week graduate type of school projects. And I had these big Jupyter notebooks and all this information and work that I'd done nine months later, as I finished the book, I was like, I've got enough material for a new book that I think really fills the gaps on that first book and things. And so that's how I arrived at sort of writing this book. To me, it's if you were to do TensorFlow, it's kind of everything that you need to not only understand the basic architecture of TensorFlow and how to use it to do machine learning, but even more so, it really is a book about machine learning and not just deep learning or neural architectures, which are all the rage now or whatever. But sometimes what happens is that even the frameworks themselves, like PyTorch or even just work that people are, are doing in AI and machine learning today, it's skipped teaching you the earlier models like regression mm. classification it misses teaching you markov models which are explainable and you know the big gap is that deep learning is amazing but it does its own feature analysis and people are having difficulty explaining why it comes to answers that it comes to 
and uh, as opposed uh-huh. to earlier modeling frameworks, which are more explainable. And so one thing we do that I do in this book is I teach you everything, like not just how to use TensorFlow for deep learning, but we do regression, we do classification, we do clustering unsupervised, we do hidden Markov models, reinforcement learning. So all the other tools of the trade that you kind of need to know to be a good machine learning and AI scientist in my mind, even before you get to deep learning. So the first two thirds of the book are all about that. And the last third is about deep learning and neural architectures. Amazing. And I really like that approach of covering the whole spectrum and covering the basics with obviously with TensorFlow. That's really great. I also like that the examples or the use cases that you have very accessible for people to understand their applications. So it's usually things that anyone in normal life would encounter, like using uh, Netflix information as a sentiment classification, using call center data. So they're not, or what I like about it is that they're not necessarily from your specific domain where you work and your job every day. It's things that any, everyone would have encountered. Was that a, a deliberate decision? How did you come to picking the use cases that you have with the book? Awesome. Yeah, thanks, Felipe. I think thought process behind that is that it was the same way. It was, well, I don't want someone to have to be a rocket scientist for this. You know, I want to pick the examples that have open data or that you might need to do basically just at any job that you want to apply AI or data science to or ML to. And that was exactly the thought process is you don't need to be a rocket scientist to do this. But in my opinion, if we want to promulgate AI and machine learning everywhere, we need to show people how to use it on anything. Those were the criteria for the selection of data sets. Also, some of the criteria are these aren't just small data sets. Some of these, one of the challenges I had in reading the first edition of the book is that a couple of the examples there wasn't a notion of how long it took to run it. And as I got started, I was like, oh my God, I need to run this in the cloud. Or this no. is actually, when you click go, and you know, it talks about in the book, clicking go, you click go, it's not going to finish for a week or whatever. And you, know, you just got to be prepared for that. So one thing I try to do in this book is pick a kind of even sampling of data that you can both process locally on your laptop and get you kind of get your feet wet, but also pick some data sets that are actually quite comprehensive. They're open, they're what you would have to deal with, but also give you the idea that machine learning and data science just doesn't happen instantaneously. And some of this stuff you got to be prepared for and you got to think about the scale elements to it and how to collect this data set or how to you know put it together in a way and then to be prepared for how long it takes to run it or how to take your code into somewhere like the cloud and run it and make it faster and things like that using the framework. So we talk about all those things. I talk about all those things in the book. That's awesome. And can you explain to us the hidden Markov models? I'm really excited that you included them in the book. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, for people that don't know what they are, what their applications are, how you're using them? Just a brief overview. Sure. So hidden Markov models, basically, there's this thing from this famous Russian mathematician philosopher called uh, Markov property. And basically, the Markov property is that things still happen even when you can't observe them. Sometimes you can only indirectly observe how things happen. And uh, you somehow still have to come up with some type of decision making framework associated with that, like even through those indirect observations. And so that's called the Markov property. Just sometimes you can't observe a direct state, but you still have to decide things based on it. So hidden Markov models are a way to take indirect evidence to model hidden states and to accumulate basically the sequence of indirect evidence that happens over time and to accumulate a kind of global probability 
of what the probability of those particular sequence of events happening in that order are, and or the probability based on evidence of what the actual hidden state is based on that indirect evidence. And so in the book, we introduce hidden Markov models. I introduce it using a very classic example. It's on Wikipedia. It's just about, for instance, whether or not it's it's rainy or sunny based on the weather, but only based on indirectly some activities associated with it, whether or not you can go out and shop, whether or not you're cleaning your house whether you're walking and what you would do, whether you would do those events based on the web. And so if you only ever have the fact that you shopped two days in a row, then you went out to walk and then you cleaned your house, what's the probability that it was actually rainy and sunny during those sequence of events? So the model of this book is every time that it introduces kind of a theoretical concept with a simple example like that, just get your feet wet with the understanding framework and all of those things. Then what we do is and this happened in the first edition of the book, at the end of those chapters, it would say, and here's how you could try it in real life. And it would just throw a suggestion out. And it would just be in the form of a bullet that says, oh, <laughs> you know, oh, by the way, natural language processing kind of works like this. If you did part of speech tagging, sometimes you can only ever observe a word, but you don't know its hidden state, the part of speech. And if you go basically look that up and figure out how to do it, like I did, you know, reading through the first edition of the book, you six weeks later come out with a bunch of code and tensor <laughs> flow, you know, that you figured out, oh, pause taggers are part of speech taggers and natural language processing work the same way. You observe work. If you take a bunch of tagged sentences and corpora, say from Shakespeare's texts or from books and things like that, as it turns out through projects like the Gutenberg project and other efforts, people have gone and they've tagged the parts of speech on those words. They've gone out and said, this is a sentence, this is a noun, this is a verb, this is an adjective. And so if you model your future sort of analysis that you're doing of, say, unseen text by training it on those prior examples, what you can do is whenever you see a word, you can come up with a statistical probability based on other data and corpora of whether or not that word is a particular part of speech by basically saying the part of speech is something that you can observe. That's the hidden Markov property. And the thing that you can observe is the word. And so basically, you statistically accumulate those probabilities by training it on, again, like just tagged corpora that are uh, out there. And then you can make predictions on words you haven't seen. And oh, by the way, that's the way natural language processing works. And so basically, mm -hmm. there's a whole chapter in the book about how to create your own pause tagger or part of speech tagger. That's a key thing in NLP using TensorFlow by building up a hidden Markov model by using open data from the Gutenberg corpus. So basically, like, again, this ends up being a whole chapter a big work. It's probably the longest chapter in the book. I just finished it. I think it was chapter 10. Basically, that wasn't present in the first edition, but it's present here. So like practical examples where it introduces the theory to you in a chapter with very simple examples using TensorFlow, and then a deep dive into a particular domain application of it and how you use it. That's what's in this version of the book. That's incredible. But what kept you going through the first edition when something was put in as a bullet point and you went sort of deep into the rabbit hole following that application and bringing it to life, spending, you know, six to eight weeks per deep dive? What kept you going during that time? The thing that kept me going was my realization that this was the future. And I remember being up late at night. My wife was asking me, Felipe, what are you doing up so late? You know, what are you working on? And I said, I get it. I understand the future is here. It's, it's AI. And I understand why this is so important. It is practical now to implement basically AI architectures using very robust frameworks. I mean, TensorFlow obviously isn't the only game in town. It's my favorite framework, but there are plenty of other ways to do this sort of easily now. And they all have their benefits and trade-offs, but very practical to do it. There 
great programming language level support in Python. Python, in my opinion, is really the data science framework nowadays. And, and this is from someone who helped invent Hadoop and work on Java, you know, and things like that. So, <laughs> you know, it's a big evolution of me to move over into the Python realm for things like that. But Python is where it's at. And just the support end to end from notebooks to running everything very easily to just everything else. And then the ability to assess how well it's doing in an easy to kind of communicate way. And, and it's just, it's very powerful. So that's what kept me up was kind of like being a kid again, a little schoolboy being like, this is amazing. So the same exuberance I hear in your voice was what kept me going at night. I love it. I, oh, I can just imagine you telling your wife later that your wife asks you, what are you working on? And you're like, the future. That's exactly right. That's <laughs> exactly what I was telling her. I see the future. I love it. Why is a TensorFlow your favorite framework for deep learning? I can answer this pretty simply. TensorFlow is my favorite framework for deep learning because in my mind, it doesn't hide a lot of the complexity with deep learning like some of the other frameworks do. For instance, one of the real mm. advantages of some of the other frameworks is people will say, oh, it's so easy to implement a neural architecture and it's a layer level API. It's super simple. It does mm -hmm. everything for you. For me, I actually like the fact that TensorFlow, although it has some very elegant, especially with TensorFlow 2, and its integration with Keras, but even in TensorFlow 114 mm -hmm. or 115, mm -hmm. it has very nice higher-level APIs. It doesn't necessarily force you to go right into using them. And even learning some of the lower-level representational elements, especially like tensors, and having the ability to basically be forced to kind of learn those structures before you get the higher-level parts, to me, was actually really important as someone who didn't come from a machine learning background. And then finally, the other reason I would say is that TensorFlow also just as elegantly supports non-neural architecture and non-deep learning architectures, say regression, yeah. classification, clustering, in the same manner that it supports neural architectures. And so to me, the support for those level constructs and models are, is actually more robust. I love it. It's very true. That is excellent. And what do you have planned for uh, part three of the book when you get into the neural network side? On the neural network side, we start out with autoencoders, and then I have a real simple example, too, of learning representations for autoencoders with CIFAR 10, and then using autoencoders to perform classification and clustering. After that, we move into deep reinforcement learning and learning kind of the cute policy functions. Very simple example with stock trading and things like that. The latter part of the book gets into convolutional neural networks. We get into basically doing image classification, kind of your ResNet, your AlexNet types of things, but then we go beyond. I basically show you how to construct VGG face, the facial identification network, by going out, re-downloading all the data and capturing it, addressing issues along the way, and then tuning a convolutional neural network after that. And then the book wraps up basically by building a seek to seek chat. Well, I'm sorry. Then there's a chapter on sound recognition and LSTMs and mm -hmm. RNNs. And then we wrap up basically by building a seek to seek chatbot to kind of bring everything together for that. So that's the latter parts of the book I'm working on now. That is awesome. How long have you been working in, on the book in total, and how has the process been for you? It's been different as a, I guess, a new old Manning author. It was, it's a lot different mm. than it was back then, but I think I'm a little bit more seasoned now. And back then, I didn't have a lot of the material 10 years ago I had today. So coming into this book, I had a lot of the material. It would be a lot harder if I hadn't already generated already end-to-end -end Jupyter notebooks mm. and things, lots of notes and stuff. So it's really just going through the process of converting my notes into something that's teachable in the mm. right order. And then I have most of the other material. It's all being published open source. It's already on GitHub, all the notebooks that I have already are already there and so yeah it's just turning that into kind of book material and it's going well i'd say i'm about a month or two from completing the book 
in its sort of draft form, and it's actively being published through Manning's Early Access Program. So it's all online as I'm finishing each chapter. So I would say probably over the summer is when it'll go to print. So Fantastic. I can't wait. The parts that are there, I've really enjoyed it. I can't wait for the rest. So I think it's going to be fantastic. And how are you finding the time? With everything that you're doing, where do you squeeze in the bits to do some writing? We talked before the show. I know you have a, a child, but you know maybe this happens to you at night. <laughs> you know, at night or early in the morning before they yeah. wake up. It's happening. It's obviously a little slowed by this uh, pandemic and stuff, but that's when. Yeah, good, bad. So we've spoken about JPL, about NASA, about the book. Tell me a little bit about your other involvement, other activities that you do as well for the community. Obviously, one of them is, is with the university. The other one's with the Apache Software Foundation. What can you tell me about those two sides to your professional interests? They all kind of went together. When I was studying to get my PhD, I got involved in Apache in my search engines class. And there wasn't many search engine class at the time. This was in 2005. And so we started using Nutch. Nutch was an open source web search engine and the predecessor to Hadoop. And so my final project in my USC search engines class when I was getting my PhD was a parser for really simple syndication files for Nutch. And that got me my start in open source, getting involved in Apache. I have academic connections there. My academic cousins at UC Irvine, my advisor's advisor was there, but were people like Roy Fielding who started Apache. My academic uncle, the guy who invented REST was Roy. And uh, Justin Ehrenkranz at UC Irvine was a sort of academic cousin of mine. We both got our PhDs around the same time. He at Irvine, I at uh, USC. And so just, he was the president of Apache. So kind of there was this academic connection there too. Since graduating, you know, I stayed on, I teach. I teach a lot of big data, open source search engines classes. It's a good recruiting tool for JPL. And then in terms of uh, open source and projects, you know, I did a five-year stint on the board of Apache after helping to create mm. things like Tika and Nutch and Hadoop, Lucene and Solar. I'm not as active in Apache anymore, but I still do a lot to promote the open source community and its projects and software. And I'm a big fan of, of what they're doing. And uh, both in terms of my people at JPL, who I kind of recommend to contribute there, as well as kind of upstream in academia and try and just get the world involved with doing open source. That is fantastic, man. Thank you for doing that work. Uh, really, really exciting. And the book, obviously, it's uh, incredible. And tell me, what type of um, things are you thinking about right now? What type of challenges are taking up your mind space? Anything that you can share, the types of things that you're working through at the moment? Yeah, two things in particular, Felipe, I think are next-gen types of things that we need to solve. First, I think we need to automate data science more. And so for me, like AutoML and the automated machine learning community, what they're doing is amazing from automated model building, selection, evaluation. So automating the steps that I'm actually covering in this book, there are actually approaches to automate that. So AutoML. And then second, it's too costly to get labeled training data for machine learning, and we need more of it. So approaches for learning with less labels. It's easy to get cat video labels, but it's not, say, easy to get labels for uh, learning about planetary science or where it requires domain or SME expertise outside of labeling, say, videos. So making that process easier, zero-shot, one-shot learning, approaches for that, generational or GANs as ways Mm. of generating labeled, believable data. Those are all things that kind of keep me going during the day. Those are the next waves, in my opinion. Oh, I love it. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more on the AutoML. 
100%. I think that there's always a discussion between people where one camp is saying, if you know the algorithms well enough, you can pick the right algorithm for the right problem and tune it. And the other side is, let's automate it and work on maybe higher value things. And automating the process, the pipeline, as you described, fantastic. There's definitely some feature engineering that can be automated, some model selection, the deployment and managing models in production and looking at things to like data drift, making sure that the new data that the model is scoring is similar to the data was trained on. Things like that are definitely um, big opportunities for automation. I couldn't agree more. And on the label data, oh man, I've been um, going down that rabbit hole a little bit as well and looking at, I think, like semi-supervised models where you're mixing unsupervised with supervised and the unsupervised area allows you to create essentially clusters where then you can tag a few examples there and then use the supervised learning models to say this whole cluster is, let's label it as the few examples that we do have. And you start to sort of get more and more um, or start making progress through there with, um, with label data. But I know that some people are looking into how do you prioritize the data to be labeled so then you get maximum learning for the algorithm. So that's uh, an area that I'm interested in that, uh, that I haven't um, got into yet. But I couldn't agree more on that. I think, um, yeah, anyway, you are. We're uh, uh, brothers amazing. from another mother. Brothers from another oh, mother. Man. Like, well, <laughs> not even, man. I think that the work that you're doing is incredible. And I think on behalf of the community, I really thank you for the effort that you put in across the board, man. So many interests and then sharing your knowledge and your learnings and your interests and sharing them so openly and so widely is A, really inspirational and I can't thank you enough on behalf of the community. So, man, thank you so much for taking the time to do the interview. Thank you for all the work. I'm so glad that we got to connect and uh, that you get to share your story. Thanks so much for sharing. Thanks so much for having me on, Felipe. It's been a pleasure to meet you. And thanks for everything you do, man. Take care. Mate, thank you. You as well. I wanted to tell you about We Are Rubik's, one of Australia's leading pure data consulting companies delivering project outcomes for some of the world's leading brands. Growing rapidly and with offices in Melbourne, Sydney and the US, Rubik's are as serious about analytics as they are about their, pin their pinball. True story, they have like 10 pinball machines in their Melbourne head office. If you're interested in joining a passionate and vibrant team who make work fun, head to wearerubix.com and get in touch today. That's we are Rubik's, all one word. We are Rubik's.com and get in touch today. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as datafuturology. Also, go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes if you like this episode it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast i hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you thanks again and see you next time